0: Be in 1 John 5 this morning. And turn with you there in your Bibles. So why do we think the things that we think? Why do we believe what we believe? These questions are at the heart of any real examination of faith, and they are all too often answered without fully realizing every factor that might be involved. For example, I grew up in a traditional Baptist church and was taught that the hope of believers was to die and go to heaven float off in my spirit form and hang out in a place that was far away and populated by good people and family and things like that. We've probably all heard stories of people who died for some short period of time and then were revived, bringing with them details of walking through a long white tunnel of light uh, only to be welcomed by family members who had already passed on, that sort of thing. Uh, In fact, it wasn't terribly long ago that there was a book that came out uh, about a little four-year-old boy named Colton who had apparently had a similar sort of -of out-of-body experience, I think that's what they call it, uh, during an emergency appendectomy that he was undergoing. And while in that state of being separated from himself, uh, he was able to see the events going on in the emergency room as well as in another room where his father had gone to pray, Uh, And then he then traveled to heaven, where he received a a halo and wings. But he didn't like them because they were too small, he said. Uh, He sat on Jesus' lap while angels sang to him, and he met the Holy Spirit, whom he described as kind of blue. He also met and spent time with his great-grandfather, whom he'd never known, and his sister, who had died as a miscarriage. Finally, he claimed to have foreseen Armageddon, uh, describing it by saying, "Well, the battle was with Jesus, the angels, and the good people, going against Satan, the monsters, and the bad people." But his father wrote a book about all this that spent three years on the New York Times bestseller list and sold over 11 million copies. And then they made a movie out of it, and the movie made over a hundred million dollars. It's called Heaven Is for Real. I'm sure y'all have heard of it. Uh, it seems as though fantastical accounts of what heaven is like can be quite profitable. Uh, never mind that the Bible doesn't give nearly the kind of account as this young boy or his father. Uh, in fact, none of the people who died and were resurrected give any details of heaven. Uh, this includes Lazarus, one of the most prominent and, and sort of well-known uh, as far as we are concerned and uh, he never gave any details either. Uh, he was dead for a few days, four days, I think, even. Uh, nothing. He would have he would have had plenty of time, you think, to look around and kind of take it in, and then come back and tell stories. But when he returned, he said nothing. The way the text reads, Jesus told the people to take off the burial linens and let him go, and then that's it. That's all that happened. I mean, some other stuff happened after that, but not with, not what Lazarus telling about heaven. Uh, even Paul who described a person being caught up to heaven had nothing to say about it other than he would boast on that man's behalf. And he didn't describe seeing family members or say that the Holy Spirit was blue or anything like that, because when it comes to heaven, that's not what matters. And that's part of what we're going to look at this morning because in this passage, John brings up the concept of eternal life. An idea that he introduced in the beginning of the letter, and he was circling around to here at the end. This makes it one of the most important concepts of this sermon that he's giving, because it kind of bookends the whole thing. And so we're going to jump in and see how it is connected to everything else he had already been saying. And I think by the end, we will see just how different eternal life is from some of the maybe wilder depictions of people floating off to heaven to sit on Jesus' lap. So, follow along with me, if you will, as we read in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has to overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. May God bless the reading of his word. So in the first two verses, John used the term born Three times. In each of them he referred to being born of God. Now think about what that means, like that terminology. Not just as a concept floating around in our minds from when we first heard the gospel and were told about being born again. But in direct connection with what John had been saying throughout this letter. Let's take a closer look. And John used the Greek word gnao which means to beget or produce offspring. And it also means to bear, conceive, or bring forth, or to regenerate. In a letter packed with repeated references to light and love and life, John used this term to describe those people who trust in Jesus as Savior and King. Those people who are in the camp of God and experience Him, as light and love and life. In other words, those people who have been born into an entirely new way of living and interacting with the world around them, a way characterized by light and love and life. And the same thing holds true for us. This principle lasts well beyond this to our time. And if we've placed our trust in Jesus, this is the same thing that we should be experiencing and living, The Holy Spirit comes to reside within us and renew us and regenerate us, and we are born again. But not just as people who know right from wrong and are a bit more moral than the rest. We are renewed and regenerated for a purpose, or calling. And John connected this directly with the idea of loving each other. Verse 2, John said that this is how we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. That's interesting because as we have already seen earlier in this letter, this isn't a call to follow the Torah and its 613 commands, it's a call to follow the two that Jesus said summed up the rest, love God, love each other. It may sound silly, but John was basically saying that the way we know we love each other is when we love each other. That loving each other is how we love God and keep His commandments. That's all locked together. And I'll be honest, I've been pretty convicted by all this. I've been preaching on this letter since the beginning of September and studying, and every week as I study and dig and pray, I keep coming face-to-face with the reality that I'm just not as loving as I need to be. And it's not that I'm mean, at least I think I'm mean. (laughs) And it's not that I'm a gossip or anything like that. It's that I struggle to give people 100%. Does that make sense? Kind of where I'm coming from there? Like I do hospital visits and I've visited with probably all of you at some point or another, either in your homes or when we're out to lunch or or those kinds of things. I'll stop and talk with townspeople at the post office or the grocery or wherever I bump into them. uh, And I will almost never refuse an offer to share a meal with anyone I love to eat. Uh, But the real problem is that on the inside, my heart's not always in it. Not all the way. Sometimes I'm wearing a mask that has nothing to do with COVID. And it bothers me. A lot, and I pray about it every single day. And I ask God to make me more like Jesus so I can love people well and wake up every morning and thank God for a new day and a new opportunity to love people well. And then I get a text or a phone call, sometimes even an email, and somebody is griping about something or someone's life is going sideways or this person is fighting with that person. And not all the time, but sometimes... I just check out. I put my phone back down, I close my eyes and I sigh and I think, what am I doing? What are we all doing? And I let it get the better of me and I I just tune out. Kind of like when you have a TV on but you're not paying attention. It's just white noise. I just tune out. And I fail to be the active light in someone's darkness. I fail to be loving when someone is experiencing hatred or animosity. I fail to bring life into situations where people are dying inside. And it isn't always. It's less than it used to be, but it still happens. And the only way for me to grow in those moments and to move further toward being like Jesus is for me to recognize them and then confess them. Because the answer isn't for me to go back and read the 613 commands of the Torah. That's not going to do anything for me. The answer isn't even for me to stare at a plaque with the Ten Commandments etched on it, as good as they are. The way forward in all of these situations is to be reminded of the Gospel. To be reminded that I am loved by God. And that Jesus showed up here among us for this very reason to show us light, love, and life. To live and die sacrificially for others, including me. And even though that's not what I'm always doing, it's what the gospel promises the Holy Spirit will produce in me if I let it. Not if I try hard enough, not if I follow all the rules, Not if I can recite a ton of verses and tell you all about the doctrine of depravity or anything like that. I can tell you that, by the way. That's not what this is saying. All I have to do is admit that I can't really do anything and that I need Jesus. That's it. This is the only way for us to really love each other. The only way for us to love God and keep the commandments John is referring to in this passage. It's all relational. And it starts with our relationship with Jesus. So the question is, how is your relationship with Jesus? How is this whole being born of God thing going for you? Are you bringing light and love and life into the world around you? Are you admitting it and confessing it When you don't, are we all truly relying on the gospel or are we outside the camp of God doing things our way or some other way, but definitely not God's way? Because as John made clear in verse 3, God's way is not burdensome. And the church often gets this all sideways, twisting the gospel into a matter of morality or good behavior But the love that John was talking about, the love that God exhibits in and through us, isn't like that. John wrote that it isn't burdensome, and here he used the Greek word barous, which means heavy, weighty, or burdensome. But this particular word has the connotation of something that is violent or oppressive. Consider what that means. The command's... Of God are not heavy in a violent or oppressive way. They are the—they aren't the sort of strict set of rules that we've all heard, like you better follow this or else. Not like that. They are about light and love and life, and those things are not at all violent or oppressive. Which means the way we live them out in our lives and and the way we show others what they're all about can't be violent or oppressive either because that's not God's way. I think about this in terms of all the sort of crazy scandals and ridiculous things going on in the church these days and sexual harassment and abuse, political divisiveness, denominational splits and a host of other things all in the same vein. But even on a more conventional level, how many churches make the gospel about a, a set of rules and then when people don't follow all the rules, they get treated like trash? How many Christians seem to think that the gospel is, yay, Jesus, now going will be good? And how many people have been hurt by the church in some way or other that is heavy and violent and oppressive? I know I have multiple times in multiple churches. Almost all of them, in fact. The only reason I'm still a part of the church at all is that I'm convinced of the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is one of those things that can sort of be boiled down to a matter of legalism or love. We are either interested in a set of rules to follow, or we are captivated by a relationship with our Creator and His creation. But legalism is so destructive, it's so heavy in such a violent and oppressive way, and yet people are drawn to it like flies to manure. But that isn't love, which means that isn't from God, because God is love. We know, that, we know what love looks like from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, where he said love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures. All things, love never fails. It says. Amen. Does this describe legalism and the kind of faith that it is all about following the rules? I don't think so. But does it describe God and the kind of relationship we can have with Him? And this is vital in understanding what John said next. We don't overcome the world through implementing rules or laws that reinforce our religious and political viewpoints that's not how we overcome the world we overcome the world through our faith the 11th chapter of hebrews explains this in detail especially in verse 1 where we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen how can something hoped for and yet unseen overcome the world right that's the question how does that work <clears throat> If we continue reading Hebrews 11, it becomes clear because in each instance that the author brings up, it's pointed out that by faith, the people in question did something, which means that just believing in something about Jesus really doesn't overcome anything. It's about active faith, an active faith that is in motion. And the part about overcoming the world isn't about escaping it either. That's kind of the Gnostic way of thinking. The Gnostics thought they would overcome the world by being free of it, by escaping their corrupt physical bodies and then floating off in some kind of spiritual form to a better place. And I've heard that same language used in Christian churches about Christian people who have passed away. But that's not the Christian hope that overcomes the world. That's not the unseen part the writer of Hebrews was talking about. On the contrary, our hope and conviction is in Jesus and the kingdom and his resurrection. It's a kingdom that doesn't show up like all the other kingdoms of the world with seats of power and grand structures of rock and stone and metal where powerful people gather to make the rules for other people and then reap the rewards of their power. No. The kingdom of God doesn't have anything like that. It has us. You and me. And other believers all around the world. Wherever we are, the kingdom of God is. Because the kingdom of God has no boundaries. No hierarchy among its citizens. But it does take physical form in the active faith of those who came before Jesus, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus himself, and in the active faith of those who have trusted in him ever since. That's how we overcome the world. We feed someone who is hungry. We clothe someone who is in need. We give up our time to sit and listen to someone who is going through something overwhelming. We forgive someone who has hurt us. We reconcile with someone. We look different. Not because we are better than anyone else, but because we know the gospel. We know that we need Jesus. We know that light and love and life are only truly found in Him. We are willing to sacrifice and lay down our kingdom for the sake of His. This whole way of life looks different, and as other people come in contact with it, they begin to see who Jesus is through us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working within us, and then they're drawn to, that's how our faith overcomes the world. John made this connection on purpose as he began to lean into his final points in this letter, claiming that overcoming the world is a matter of trusting in Jesus. Then he made three further connections to water, to blood, and to the Spirit. (coughs) The commentaries I read this week, they were sort of all over the place on this, um, There wasn't a whole lot of consensus. This is a a difficult part of this passage. But I think it's safe to say that in context of what John's saying, it's primarily about Jesus. So we need to keep that in mind as we try to figure out what it means. In this case, then, it seems as though the water represents the testimony of Jesus' baptism. And the blood represents the testimony of his crucifixion. And then finally, there's the Spirit. And John may have borrowed from Paul here because in Romans 1-4, Paul wrote that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the Holy Spirit was the power that brought Jesus back to life and in doing so provided testimony of his triumph over sin and death. John's point in bringing these three together in this discussion seems pretty straightforward. The way we are born of God is through what Jesus did. Our faith in Jesus who was baptized made the ultimate sacrifice and rose from the grave. The water, the blood, and the spirit all agree in those things. The reason, reason it's important that these three agree is actually a refutation of the Gnostic teaching That every physical thing is corrupt and that only that which is spiritual is pure. On the contrary, according to John, this testimony includes both. And this goes back to what we have discussed before about how our, our bodies are not just shells for spiritual beings who will one day escape them. We are a fusion of physical and spiritual, and we have been since the beginning. Since Genesis 1, when God formed humanity from the dust of the ground, that's the physical part, and then breathed into us, us the breath of light, that's the spirit. Of all God's creatures, great and small, humanity is the only one that is a mixture of both physical and spiritual. <coughs> Dogs, cows, whales, lizards, they're only physical beings, as much as we might love some of them. The angels and cherubim and seraphim are only spiritual beings. Humans are both at once. And from the first part of his letter, John has been asserting the reality that Jesus, the Son of God who was a spiritual being, became a physical flesh and blood being like us in order to rescue us from our sin and death problem. But a further point John was making here is that the testimony about Jesus, the testimony of his baptism, sacrifice, and resurrection was ours as well. That this is what being born of God means. Through what Jesus did, we become brand new creatures. And Paul said as much in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. We are still both physical and spiritual, but now we are regenerated and being made new in the likeness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead. As John pointed out in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself which brings us to the part about eternal life. In verses 11 through 12, John connected all of this to eternal life, claiming that God gave us eternal life and that whoever had the Son had life and that whoever did not have the Son did not have life. That makes sense, right? If God is light and love and life, then Jesus is those things as well and so is the Spirit, And if we are placing our trust in Jesus who is those things and being filled with the Spirit who is those things, then they will be in us as well. Amen. This wasn't the first time John wrote this. He had written it in his gospel account as well, specifically in John 3.16, which is one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, the Gnostics believed that eternal life was the spiritual life that they would experience outside of their physical bodies after death. John, however, was making the case that for those who trust in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit, eternal life was already theirs. As in... They had eternal life from the moment they were regenerated, right when they were born of God, right then. And the Greek word John chose to use here bears this out. It's the word ainos. I hope I said that right. Ainos. Which means eternal or of the age. This word is derived from the root word aino, nun, sorry, ainon, which had to do with an indefinite period of time, but one that was characterized by a particular quality of existence. In other words, eternal life isn't just a measure of time. It's not the best way to understand it. It's about the quality of life. For example, if I mention the Victorian age, very few people would think I'm referring specifically to the years 1837 through 1901 even though those are the dates of Queen Victoria's reign and therefore mark off the beginning and the end of the Victorian age. On the contrary, most people will think of various things particular to life during that period, such as architectural styles, artistry, technological and industrial advances, or even fashion trends. Things of that sort define the age in terms of quality, and In terms of eternal life, then, our thoughts shouldn't be consumed with the length so much as the depth, right? We should think about what it is that marks life as different now than it was before, and how the quality of life we have now serves as a testimony to the one who gives it to us. In Romans 6.23, Paul marked this transition by writing, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, because of Jesus, we are moving from death to life. And John would, of course, add that because of Jesus, we are moving from darkness to light and from hatred to love. And it's here that all the other descriptions from both Paul and John sort of fall into place. Eternal life Is a matter of Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, as well as his description of love from 1 Corinthians 13. It's a matter of John's description of Jesus as our propitiation from chapter 2 and chapter 4, and how it results in the kind of love we experience as the children of God. The kind of love the Holy Spirit wants to develop in us for the sake of others. These are just a few of the highlights because if I went back through the whole list, we could be here a really long time. But this is the whole point John had been aiming at all along. In contrast to the selfish lives the Gnostics were living that were no different, really, than anyone else, those born of God would live differently because of the light, love, and life they had been given. They'd be selfless and sacrificial more than not. They would actively love those around them just as they had been actively loved by God the Father when he sent Jesus to live and die and rise again. They would be merciful and extend grace and forgiveness just as God is merciful and extends grace and forgiveness. All these things were a matter of the eternal life growing within them. The same is true for us The eternal life growing within us. This is who we are called to be. But even better, it's who we get to be. We get to be the way people experience the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. We have to be. Because the world is already full of the alternative. It's all around us. We need to keep our focus on the light and love and life that is only found in our Savior and King and then live accordingly. We pray.